0: All right, as you're taking your seats, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Well, as you're opening God's Word this morning, I just want to begin by asking a question, and that question is this, what is it that we need, what is it that you and I need in order to begin and to sustain life? Or maybe to ask it in, a, in another way, what, what do you and I need in order for life to be begun in us and sustained in us. And it might sound uh, kind of almost like a riddle, doesn't it? That question, it's, it's an interesting question. It's a question you may be thinking has many answers. That, that would be true if you're thinking that um, it, it has many answers and it also has a couple of different ways of being answered. You might be thinking when I ask that question of, of something like oxygen, you know, that, that life supporting characteristic of the air we breathe uh, you might be thinking of having uh, vital organs functioning vital body parts that without which we could never be born in the first place or continue to live with you might be thinking of food or, or water and those would all, all be correct answers we need those things to to be born in the first place and to live our lives thereafter and that is one way of looking at it that, that is a physical way but what about the spiritual way What do you and I need in order to be born spiritually and to continue to have life spiritually? There are different ways of answering this question as well. You might be thinking, we need the Spirit of God. And that would be correct. We, We need the Spirit of God in order to have life and sustain life. We need the truth of God's Word. We need faith in order to have life and continue to have life in Jesus Christ. And another answer to this question is this. We need repentance. Repentance. We need repentance in order to have life and to continue to have life. We desperately need repentance because without the first fruits of repentance, we cannot be truly born again. And without ongoing repentance in our lives, we cannot experience the sweet fellowship with God that we're meant to enjoy in the Christian life. And it's this latter part, this, this sweet fellowship with God for the Christian that comes through repentance that I want to focus on this morning. You see up on the screen behind me um, the, the series title, Transformed, Learning to Think Biblically. And if you're new with us, maybe you've never been here for one of our transformed messages. These are messages we do from time to time. We just pull over and we look at one aspect, one, one topic from God's Word and we say, what does God's Word want us to know? What does God want us to know about this so that we can live our lives to glorify Him? We, we launched this series some time ago out of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 which says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may be able to discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We want to know how to think rightly. God wants us to know how to think rightly. He is intent on purifying our thought life and and he calls that our heart as well so that we can live for him the way that he has called us to live for him. So the title of this morning's message under under this broad uh, series is Learning to Think Biblically About Repentance. Learning to think biblically about repentance. And I want to, just as we get started here, offer a, a definition or, or two or three for you, as I sometimes do, to help make sure you know, we, we know what we're talking about here before we get started. When we say repentance, you know we've already touched on our need for repentance, but what is it? What is repentance? Uh, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines repentance this way. He says, a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. I know some of you are trying to get that. I'll say it again. A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. John MacArthur succinctly just in in, in just a few brief words, gives a picture of repentance. He says it is an aggressive turning toward holiness. An aggressive turning toward holiness. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer from uh, a number of centuries back, says repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Reformed. And we're going to look at this heartfelt reform, this, this turning from sin to holiness, this morning as we peer into part of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. The ESV Study Bible says this about this letter. It says, this is the most personal of all Paul's letters, filled with deep emotion. And I would have to agree. Paul's letter to the Corinthians as we'll see, uh, reflects his relationship with the Corinthians. It was a, it was a, a shaky relationship, at times complicated, and, and it uh, had various layers of, of apostolic ministry going on. And so I just want to dive in with you uh, into chapter 7 and, and see what's going on here. I'm going to read a lengthy section and maybe pull over at times to just give some context and explanation of what's going on. So bear with me as we do that. Uh, just before we start, you have to understand that there are a group of people who have come to Corinth after Paul's left who are opposing his apostolic authority and ministry. They're called super apostles by Paul. And they're questioning his motives, his character, his courage. They're questioning his gifting, whether or not he has the power of a spirit-filled man who has authority from God. They're saying, how can he look at him? He's so weak. And unfortunately... They're making inroads into the Corinthian church and the people are starting to gravitate towards them and and you can just imagine how heartbreaking this would have been for Paul. Not only because it was his own personal hurt, but but despite their actions, it was because he's so deeply concerned about the authenticity of their walk with Christ and their hope of eternal salvation that he has to write to them to correct this. So look down with me at uh, chapter 7 beginning in verse 2. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, tells us these words. Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you. For as I said before, you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. See, Paul loved the people in Corinth. He'd spent a year and a half with them when he planted the church there. He he poured his life into them, he suffered for them so that they would come to Christ. And here they are now hurting him by believing these lies about him. Verse 4: I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you, he says. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Listen, brothers and sisters, we, we say often that our circumstances do not have to determine whether or not we have joy in the Lord. And, and Paul says that here, so I just, I just want to share with you that even, even as Paul is going through much trials, much hardship, he still can find joy in the Lord. Verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every Turn, fighting without, and fear within. Paul's ministry was uh, full of affliction. Everywhere he turned, everywhere he went, there's people waiting there or following him there to cause him trouble. So he, he says this when, when we went to Macedonia, and, and when we left one place to go to another, we, our bodies never had any rest, and, and we were afraid, we were, we were afraid in our own hearts, and we might ask a question, Paul, what were you afraid of? And he tells us just a few chapters later in this letter. In chapter 11, verse 3, he says, I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul was afraid that they would turn away from following the Savior that they had once confessed. Verse 6, but God, he says, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Good news came from Titus. For even if I made you grieve... And if you have a different translation in your lap, it might say, even if I made you sorrowful or even if I made you sad with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. What, what letter is Paul talking about here? Is, is, is he talking about 1 Corinthians? I mean, this is 2 Corinthians and he's referring to a previous letter. Maybe he's talking about 1 Corinthians. That might be our initial uh, assumption, but um, if we understand more fully what's going on here and as as most uh, uh, scholars who have studied the Corinthian letters do, uh, they see that there's more going on here in terms of uh, two-way communication going on or even one-way, if you will, communication going on between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. Really, we know of four letters that he wrote to the Corinthian church because in 1 Corinthians he refers to a letter that he'd previously written to them already. And now here in 2 Corinthians, he he refers to this letter that made them sorrowful. And this letter is, is referred to as the severe letter. And it's most likely not 1 Corinthians, it's most likely another letter that was specifically written by Paul to address this area of opposition to his apostolic ministry. And, and it was a strong letter. He needed to call them to repentance. And Paul says. You know, I, I didn't regret it, but I kind of did regret it. And he, he had this wrestling match going on in his heart that he tells us about because he, he wasn't sure how it was going to be received. Would they turn or, or would they, you know, put this letter up and, and continue to, to scorn Paul and to, to oppose his authority in their church? But thankfully, Titus comes with good news. Titus comes and, and, and he tells of, of their longing for Paul, their zeal for Paul, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Look at verse 9. Paul says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I don't want you to think from verse 10 here that Paul is saying before this letter and before they, they turned to Paul that they were never saved. That's, that's not necessarily what he means here by talking about repentance that leads to salvation. I, th- I think what he means is there's two realms of godly grief or sorry, two, two realms of grief, one, is, one of them is godly. Okay, So two realms of, of grief, one is godly and the other one is worldly. And he says this, this godly grief over here belongs with, together with, salvation. It might be hard, it might be humbling, but it produces repentance. And this is the proper kind of, of grief. This is the salvation kind of grief. Now on the other hand, there's this death kind of grief. This grief that only leaves us in paralysis or despair or, or bitterness. And Paul says, you were made aware of your sin. You were upset about it. And I'm rejoicing because your kind of grief is the kind that belongs with salvation. What's the determining factor? How does he know? It's, it's whether or not they're... they're displaying marks of genuine repentance. Charles Spurgeon says, a Christian must never leave off repenting, for I fear he never leaves off sinning. Thomas Watson again says, repentance must be to the Christian what a paintbrush is to the painter. They go together. The painter leaves his home, he brings his brush with him. Repentance must be a mark of the Christian life. And so the burning question for us today then is is this, does our grief over sin produce within us change for God's glory? To say it it another way, how can I know that that I'm glorifying God with sincere repentance? So I want to look at verse 11 particularly now. And I want to draw out from you, some some ways that you and I can know we're experiencing true, genuine repentance. First is this, I can know I'm truly repentant when I'm resolved to do what is right. I can know I'm truly repentant when I'm resolved to do what is right. Look at the beginning of verse 11. Paul says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, What feeling sense of obligation. What burning resolve that something needs to be done. What commitment to change. What earnestness, Paul says. This is is where repentance begins. It's, It's a diligence to turn away and get aligned with the righteous path. Not later, but now. Right away, as soon as I'm made aware of my sin. Whatever needs to be done, matters big or small, I'm going to do what is right. This is what earnest repentance says. What do I need to do? What is God's way? It assumes, I hope you're getting the picture, it assumes an aggressive posture. right? It's it's hands on the wheel, eyes straight ahead, foot on the pedal, let's go, seriousness of purpose, earnest, ready to turn. This is foundational to some of the more specific evidences of genuine repentance that we're going to see in this verse. Earnestness is, is, is when you know you're ready to begin to say repentance is taking place. And Paul saw, that, saw this to be true in the Corinthians. He sent this letter and he sent Titus to follow up. He says, go see, see how they're responding to my letter. And Titus comes back and he, he says, they're ready. They want to do something about it. They want to turn to righteousness. And this brought great joy to the Apostle's heart. Certainly, earnest earnestness in repentance is not less than confession of sin. Agreeing that, that it's true, I, I've transgressed the ways of the Lord. I'm willing to call sin, sin. Is this your response when sin is addressed in you? You know, maybe it doesn't come as a letter from an apostle, or maybe, maybe it does, right? Maybe it comes from reading God's word. Maybe it comes in a sermon. Maybe maybe it comes from someone that God sends into your life to say, hey, I need to talk to you about something I'm seeing in your life that that isn't right. Maybe it it comes from the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit when you're just sitting there in your house or in your car or on a walk. However it happens. However your sin has been exposed and, and when you've grieved over the 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 sin that is in your life, are you resolved at that moment to do what is right? Does earnestness manifest itself in you? Often there's a fear in taking this first step of repentance because we know it's going to be hard. We, we, We know dealing with sin, confessing sin, Acknowledging sin in our lives is not going to be easy. It'll appeal again to Thomas Watson. He's written this great book, by the way, The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. He just says simply this. Men are willing to dig for gold. Like, it's hard. Can you imagine mining for gold in the earth? The sweat, the toil, the, the tears, the, the darkness. And yet men do this because of what? The, the, the outcome that's to, that they're expecting in the end. And, and if we're expecting a better outcome, how much better is it to have sweet fellowship with God than to obtain earthly treasures? See, things like complacency over sin, Indifference to sin in our lives, re- reluctance to, to change, needing to be dragged away from sin in, in an effort for someone else to turn you. Listen, if, if someone else wants repentance in your life more than you want it for yourself, these things are incompatible with true repentance. God calls us to be earnest, to be resolved. To do what's right when sin comes to light in our lives. All right, that's the first evidence. I can know I'm truly repentant when I'm resolved to do what is right. Next, I can know I'm truly repentant when I'm determined to show I'm different. When I'm determined to show I'm different. Paul says, but also, what eagerness to clear yourselves. You see that there in verse 11? What earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What vindication, what defense of yourselves. And it's important that we right away make sure we understand what this is not. He's not saying they were being defensive. He's not saying that they were clearing their name of ever having done any wrongdoing at all. That, that is not the case. That would not make any sense. What, what we need to understand this clearing of themselves to mean is, is honesty. It's honesty. It's—it's it's, This is what I've done, but this will not be my way any longer. And let me show you. Let me prove it to you. This is all about a strong desire to restore trust to to restore confidence to to show this is not who i am anymore i can just imagine the corinthians telling titus go tell paul we want to prove it to him we're sorry we need him to forgive our sins we're not going to listen to those lies anymore We, we want to show him we'll prove it to him Genuine repentance that results from godly grief says that as many as knew my sin, I want them all to know that I've turned. There's a a really great picture of this in the Gospels, Gospel of Luke, of this uh, short little guy who climbed a tree one day to see Jesus. You might know who I'm talking about. It's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. You know how many friends he had? Zero. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. You know why? He didn't just collect taxes, he collected more for himself. He he extorted people, he took advantage of people. He got rich off of their backs. People knew what he was doing. And here's Zacchaeus, this cheat, this, this liar, this thief. And he hears one day that Jesus is coming to town. He sees the crowds gathering and yet he's too small to see over their heads and nobody's getting out of the way for Zacchaeus. So what does he do? He climbs this tree and he waits for Jesus. And Jesus comes down the path. And Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I need to come to your house today. People are outraged. What? what? You're going to this sinner's house? And and that's what Jesus does, right? He goes to sinners' houses and he goes in and, and he talks to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus turns from his sin, doesn't he? Zacchaeus says, I've stolen from those people, but but I'm going to make it right. See, true repentance, like Zacchaeus says, I'm going to go give them back their money, and even fourfold. I'm going to show the town, look, that Zacchaeus that you knew before, I'm not the same man anymore. The opposite of this is, is justifying our own sin. Saying things like, well, I, I, I had to do it. You, you just don't understand. Or it's, it's not that big of a deal, really. You're making too much out of this. Leave me alone. Get off my back. Or, wait, you, you know about this? Who else knows about this? It, you didn't tell anybody else. Nobody else knows about this sin, do they? See, that's not genuine Repentance. Genuine repentance says I'm determined to show I'm different. So what about you? Maybe while we're on the topic of tax collectors, we we could talk about stealing money. We could could talk about maybe um, what many people do and and withhold things on their income tax return in order to keep back what uh, legally ought to go to the government. Maybe it's not the government. Maybe it's a friend or a family member has entrusted you with with money and you're supposed to pass it on to someone else and you keep back a little extra for yourself. Maybe it's not um, money in that sense. Maybe it's time from your employer. You're you're getting paid for work you're not doing. Maybe it's a possession that you've taken from someone else that you just really are enjoying having and so you, you don't want to give it back. See, Godly sorrow, genuine repentance, manifest itself in your desire to make it right, personally. Personally. It's not enough to just say, well, well, God knows, God knows, and He's forgiven me, I've talked to Him about it. No. If there's sin involved with another person, then repentance also needs to involve that other person too. And if we're unwilling to do that, you know, I, I know this is hard stuff we're looking at this morning, but... but if we're unwilling to do repentance, God's way to, to, to show godly grief over our sin, then we're keeping a wall up in our relationship with the Lord. We're, we're, we are confining ourselves from the sweet fellowship of a walk that is clear and conscience-free with the Lord. And, and that's, that's, why, that's why I want to look at this text this morning. I, I want all of us to be so committed to pursuing godly grief when there's sin brought to light in our lives. I don't want you to feel distant from the Lord because you haven't properly repented. Alright, I'm determined to show I'm different. Next. I can know I'm truly repentant when I'm outraged over my offense. Next. Next. Paul says, what indignation. We're going to see a series of words here all um, preceded by the word what. And what isn't a usual conjunction that we would use, right, to put things together. But you need to understand that what's going on here. Uh, in the previous phrase, uh, Paul says, but also what eagerness. So you need to, that's what, how you need to read each one of these what. Right? Not only this, but also this. It's, repentance is a package deal. That's Paul's point here in just rhyming off these characteristics of genuine repentance. So he says, What indignation, what anger, what hatred, what holy outrage. Repentance says, I hate this sin. I hate it. Not taking it lightly. God doesn't take it lightly. And since the Corinthians were commended by Paul for their repentance, surely they would have had a change of mind. Uh, With regards to these opponents that were raging against the Apostle Paul. They would have turned away from listening to their lies. And they, they would now, instead of engaging with them and giving them their ear. They would be enraged that these people are saying what they're saying about Paul. They would be so angry because it's sin. But listen, it's not only that. They would have also have been outraged over the fact that they had participated themselves they would have been filled with indignation over their own sin in all of this John MacArthur says it this way it's anger at your sin it's anger at the shame you have brought on yourself on the apostle Paul on the Lord Jesus Christ on God on the church there's a real anger here over the fact that you've been deceived and discredited they hated their disloyalty They hated their iniquity. They hated their sin. They hated their reluctance. They hated the fact that they didn't come to Paul's protection and defense. They hated the fact that they had fallen victim to the lies of deceivers who were spreading things that weren't true about Paul. They hated the fact that they had identified themselves with defectors. They were literally outraged over their sin. Paul knows this feeling personally. He says in Romans chapter 7, he says, I I don't understand myself. I don't understand my own actions. I I do not do the things I want to do and the very things I do, I hate. He's talking about that residual sin in his own life that remains. He says, I hate it. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, through your precepts, I get understanding therefore I hate every false way God wants us to hate our sin he doesn't want us to hate ourselves he wants us to hate the sin that remains in our hearts not uh, this is someone else's fault like you know uh, the, the woman gave me the woman that you gave me gave me the apple no 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 it was the serpent gave, no not it was someone else's fault not, I hate that I got caught for my sin. Not, I hate the consequences of my sin. Like, you know, Pharaoh who asked Moses, well, pray for me. Uh, get, get these locusts out of here. I, okay, I relent. I'll let them go. No, it's, it's I hate my sin. I, I hate that I'm oppressing God's people. That's, that should have been his response if it was going to be godly grief. Not, I hate... That others are going to think less of me. I, I hate the humiliation of my sin being brought to light. No. This is not repentance. See, hypocrites grieve only for the bitter consequences of sin. The, the unrepentant murderer grieves for the prison cell, not that he has sinned against a holy God. When you're more irate that you're losing something, Maybe it's your reputation that you wanted to uphold. Maybe it's a possession that you would have to let go of. If you're more irate about losing something than you are that you've offended the holy God, this is not true repentance. True repentance is when you're outraged over your own offense. And maybe you're thinking of a sin in your life right now. You know, We're talking about sin. We're talking about holiness, repentance. Maybe there's something that God is bringing to mind for you. Do you hate the sin? Do you hate it? Do you want to slay that sin? Put it to death? Bury it? Turn away from it? Maybe there's a command in God's Word that that you're not obeying. You know, there's there's things that God's word tells us not to do, and, and when we do them, that's disobedience, that's sin. There's also things in God's word that tells us to do. Maybe there's something that you know is in God's word that you're supposed to be doing and you're not. You need to hate that. You need to be outraged over that offense. You know, I talk to lots of you, I talk to lots of believers, I talk to unbelievers, and, and often even in evangelism it comes up, I'm, I'm talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. Come to save sinners. I'm talking about specific sin in someone's life that's not pleasing to the Lord, that goes against everything that God created us to be in worshipers of Him. And, and I often get the response, oh, I, I feel guilty, I feel guilty. You want to know Why? Because they are guilty. They are guilty. We, we need to um, be done with the world, worldly thinking about guilt and, and get on God's program and, and say godly grief acknowledges guilt. And it says I hate the fact that I'm guilty and I want to turn from this sin that I hate. All right. We need to move on. Uh, I can know... I'm truly repentant when I'm resolved to do what's right, when I'm determined to show I'm different, when I'm outraged over my offense. Now, fourthly, when I'm decided upon devotion. When I set the trajectory of my heart upon devotion to God. Paul says, What fear? But also, what fear? Included in this package is a holy reverence, a a reverential obedience, a trembling before God. Genuine repentance is evidenced in the intensity of its focus upward. There might be um, other fears involved, just like we saw earlier when Paul admitted that he was fearful that the Corinthians would turn away from following Christ. But ultimately, the fear of repentance is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. This is concluding what came before it. Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What fear? This is the pursuit of holiness. And the Bible has much to say about the fear of God. It says that the fear of the Lord is turning away from and hating evil. That's in the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is turning away from and hating evil. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is to walk in His ways. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. There is no true knowledge, there is no true wisdom without fear of the Lord. A turning away and hating evil. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, God's Word says. In Ecclesiastes, the last two verses to end this book that Solomon writes, just considering the vanity of life, considering the purpose of life, he says, here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. It's it's a command, and, and so we have a choice to make. What will I decide to be devoted to? Continuing in my disobedience? Rebellion? Ongoing Stubbornness, refusal to hear and deal with my sin, commitment to my own way? Or will I be devoted to God? Will I I choose devotion to the Lord? You know, I think of many idols in our hearts, you know, the idol of, of pride that wants to be seen in a certain way by others the the idol of of satisfaction in my life through the possessions that i can accumulate the the idol in my heart of wanting to have power and, and control true repentance is no i'm turning away from these things because i'm decided upon devotion and like we saw in in verse 1 i I want to bring holiness to completion in my life. This is the words of a truly repentant person who is grieving with godly sorrow. I'm decided upon devotion. Next, I can know I'm truly repentant when I'm passionate to make peace. I can know I'm truly repentant when I'm passionate to make peace. I'm going to combine the next two together and I'll explain why Paul says what longing, what zeal. And both of these are relational words. They they both speak of desperate regard for others. We could say it like this. What affection and what deep concern you have. What desire for reconciliation, for peace that I see in you. If you look back at uh, verse 7, we we read this earlier, Paul says he was comforted by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of what? Your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for what? For me, he says. See See how relational this is? Where there's godly sorrow over sin that affects someone else, one of the evidences of true repentance is a fervent desire to make things right between me and the one whom I have sinned against. There's a relentless longing to restore the relationship. It's been said that zeal is a twofold emotion. It, it speaks on one hand of loving something so much that on the other hand, you hate anything that opposes it. And so here we see evidence in the Corinthians that they loved loved the idea of restoration with the Apostle Paul. They longed to make things right with him. And they hated anything that was going to stand in the way. There is some overlap here, right? we're, We're starting to see things like, eagerness and earnestness again kind of popping up. I think that's Paul's intention. I think he just wants to kind of pile on here so that we get the point of repentance. Is there longing and, and zeal in your heart to pursue passionately peace with those whom you have sinned against? Does this describe you? Maybe, maybe it's a sin of the tongue. Maybe, maybe it's slander. Maybe maybe you like talking about other people and, and Your sin has found you out. Maybe it's burst of anger towards somebody in the way that you speak to them. Maybe it's it's arrogance in your speech. Talking down to others. Maybe when you talk to other people, you don't let them get a word in edgewise. Maybe, maybe, Maybe you haven't said something that you ought to have said. And this amounts to sin in your life and it affects other people if you're sorrowful over anything like this, does, does what you call repentance include a passionate pursuit of peace with that person? That's the mark of genuine, godly grief. You know, often when there's um, relational sin, uh, one, one of the, the people will say, well, you know, I've, I've done all I can do. I, I don't know what else I can do. And You know what? There's usually a lot more that we can do. There's usually a lot more that we can do. Look at Romans chapter 12, or or just, if you want to turn there, turn there. If you want to listen, listen, I'll read it. Romans chapter 12, there's a section here that in my Bible, the the ESV, the people who put the ESV together, they they said this section is called the marks of the true Christian. Probably want to take notice of that, right? Okay, look at verse 9, Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hate, hate it, hate what's evil, even if it's in your own heart. Hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Live peaceably with all. Listen, genuine repentance exhausts all possibilities. Genuine repentance says I'm going to do everything within my power to make peace with the person that I've sinned against. Now, if if they will not make peace with you, that's another thing altogether. But we need to make sure we're not stopping short of what God's called us to do. I can know I'm truly repentant. When I'm passionate to make peace. Finally, number six, I can know I'm truly repentant when I'm content to accept consequences. When I'm content to accept consequences. What earnestness, what eagerness, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, Paul says. What punishment, or we could say it like this, what avenging of wrong. Or I like this translation the best. What readiness to see justice done. I think that captures Paul's intent here in the word punishment. What readiness to see that justice be done. See, there's a sorrow of the world that says, I'm sorry for my offense. I'm sorry that I sinned against you. But when any talk of consequences are suggested, then there comes a singing of a new tune. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance evidences itself in the willingness to take on the appropriate negative results of one's actions. A willingness to see justice done. A contentment in that. I've sinned, so what do I need to do? How do I need to make this right? Is there a punishment involved? Okay, I'll take it. And maybe at times the consequence might be that you have to follow through with punishing another offender. That, that's the case in the context here. Or maybe, maybe it's that we need to be submissively receiving the punishment that's due to our own sin. That's also the case here with the Corinthians. No fighting back. No resisting. No, no denying Just just humbly, only humbly acknowledging I've done wrong and it's right that I accept the consequences for my actions. This is what the Lord requires of us. And when the opposite is true, when there's defiance toward just consequences for sin, when there's impatient demand of getting back what I had before, okay, okay, I've sinned, but just give me my stuff back, give me my position back, give me my title back, when there's criticism of God's ordained disciplinary process, well, why are you talking to me about this? Get out of my business. Who do you think you are? You know, When measures of accountability are scoffed at and rejected, when self-protection becomes the highest priority, then you can be sure genuine repentance is not taking place. If these things are true of you, then, then it only proves that you care more about yourself than you care about God in that moment. There's a, another biblical example of repentance that is just so sweet for us to consider and that's the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15 tells that Jesus tells the story of, of a father and two sons and one of the sons comes and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. It's absurd. Basically, he's saying, I wish you were dead because I want what's coming to me when you die now. But the father obliges, divides the inheritance among his sons, and, and the son then leaves, and, and Jesus says he went and he indulged in reckless living. But as happens with those who do, they quickly, he quickly ran out of money, found himself laboring for someone else in the pig's field, longing to just have something to eat, maybe even what the pigs are eating, even though it would kill them. And the story says that this man came to his senses. He came to his senses. He repented. And you want to know how we know that? Because he acknowledged his sin. He says, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to tell him I'm ready to be your son again and all the privileges that, that are enjoyed with that. No, no, he didn't say that, did he? He said, no, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to acknowledge, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And if you will only receive me back as as." I'm not worthy to be even one of your lowly servants. See, he was willing to accept the consequences, the punishment that he deserved. This is true repentance. And it's not lost that the Father received him, welcomed him back, forgave him, and blessed him. And we don't know exactly what this reckless living was that the son indulged in. His, his brother accused him of wasting the money on prostitution. Maybe that's true or maybe that's just what his brother said because he was really angry. But he, he could have, right? He, he could have gone and, and, par- and in, his, in his partying and in his, in his lifestyle, he could have indulged in sexual immorality, maybe substance abuse. And maybe that's true of some who are here today. Are you ready to bring your sin to light? Are you ready to turn from that? Even if it means that there's going to be consequences? There's serious consequences for serious sins, isn't there? And yet what's better, to continue on? To not deal with your sin? To not bring it to light? Confess it to the Lord and to the the people whom you've sinned against? No, you, you won't experience any joy in the Lord if you don't repent if you don't have godly grief over your sin. Maybe all this talk about sin, you don't even know if there's something in your life you're supposed to be repenting of. And that's okay, it's okay to have a clear conscience. The Apostle Paul writes about that. But I just want to encourage you, Psalm 139, the last words of Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way within me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Church, we need to love repentance so much that we're looking for things to be repentant for. Why? Because we like the pain? No. Because we like drawing near to the Lord. And there are some who who just walk around in this life or maybe in your small group and and you're constantly saying, "Ah, I don't know, there's no sin in my life. I'm doing well, I'm doing fine. And it's just this pattern over and over again. And and you're contrary to what the Scriptures say about the sin that remains in every believer's heart. Spurgeon is right. We never escape from sin in this life. And so we ought to be looking, you know, the, the joy and the blessings that come from repentance Ought to make us desire to find out where is that hidden sin that I don't even see in my own heart so that I can turn away from that too. The Apostle Paul finishes verse 11 saying, At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. You've demonstrated yourself to be pure. That's how we could take that. You've cleared your name. And if we were to isolate this sentence apart from the context, we might incorrectly read this and think that somehow Paul's saying, you know, you've, you've proven that you never ever did anything wrong in the first place, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying they were innocent, not in the sense of having never done wrong, but in the sense of having made things right. At every point, he says, in all these tests of genuine repentance, pass, pass, pass. You've done it all, you've proven yourself to be innocent, to have changed course, to have turned, to get on God's program. They received this letter that Paul sent to them and they responded with godly sorrow and they held nothing back. They bore fruit, you might say, in keeping with repentance. Praise God. Praise God, right? I I hate to think what would have happened if they did not repent. Can you think of what they would have forfeited if they had only worldly grief? And maybe more importantly than that, do you know what you would forfeit if you have only worldly grief? Psalm 51 is the Old Testament counterpart to 2 Corinthians 7. These are the two places in Scripture that we might call the mountaintops of, of repentance. And I'm, I just want you, if if you're writing notes, and, and I, I really hope uh, you're serious about maybe digging into God's Word on this topic a little more uh, later on, just write down in, in your notes Psalm 51 to go and, and read from Psalm 51. And, and even the sister psalm to that is Psalm 32. Psalm 51 is where Paul shows us a prayer of repentance. And in Psalm 32, he shows us a celebration of forgiveness. And I just want to quickly look at a few verses from Psalm 51. I'm going to put them up on the screen behind me uh, so that we can just consider what what do we forfeit if we don't repent. Psalm 51.10, let's put that up. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me we don't have godly sorrow if there's no genuine repentance in our sin then we're forfeiting a clear conscience a clear conscience look at verse 11 cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me now we do need to remember that david was living in the old covenant under the old covenant we live under the new covenant and the holy spirit isn't given the same way in both cases and and the holy spirit was upon Uh, people in the Old Testament to use them for God, whereas in the New Testament the Holy Spirit dwells within every believer for all time, never to be taken away. But, having said that, we can quench the Holy Spirit, right? We can be more or less led by the Spirit. We can be more or less filled with the Spirit. We can be more or less walking in the Spirit. And, And so, if we're not repenting, then we are forfeiting a sense of closeness with the Lord we're forfeiting the Spirit's leading in our lives. Verse 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The joy of salvation. If we don't repent, we're forfeiting the joy of salvation. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Listen, if, if you don't repent of sin in your life, how are you going to go and tell someone else to repent of the sin in their life? You're, you're forfeiting the freedom to proclaim God's saving grace in evangelism. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. Some, some cannot sing to the Lord in worship because there's unrepentant sin in their heart. You want to forfeit the freedom to worship the Lord in song. And then, verse 15, O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. I think here David is still probably talking about singing to the Lord in the declaration of praise, but there's another way that we declare praise to the Lord, isn't there? And that's in, in prayer, personal time with the Lord. And so, if we don't repent, we're forfeiting the freedom to pray. And, and there are some who can't pray who can't bring themselves to spend time talking to God because you know there's sin in your heart that you haven't dealt with. And I don't want that to be any of you this morning. I want you to experience a fellowship with God that comes from the one who demonstrates godly grief over sin. Finally, in Psalm 32, I just want to put one more up there. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, David's talking about his sin, when I I didn't, Confess my sin. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David could feel his lack of repentance eating away at his body. And there there are some who are sick because they refuse to repent of sin. I'm not saying, hear me say this, that all who are sick, it's because you're not repenting. That's not what I'm saying. But but a lack of Repentance can lead to physical illness. David said, I felt like your hand was heavy on me. I don't don't know about you, but I hope to think that like me, I, I don't like feeling like the heavy hand of the Lord is upon me, like I'm walking around with a thousand pound spiritual weight on my back. I want the strength of the Lord to be my strength. And I want that for you too. And that's why... We need to examine what true, genuine repentance looks like. But if we do repent, we gain all of these things. That's the good news. How can the guilty be considered innocent? How can the guilty Be considered innocent and and the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, Jesus paid the penalty that we owed for our sin. He left heaven's throne to come and pay the debt that we owed. That is is why repentance works. How else can we come to God and, and say, God, I've sinned in your sight. And be forgiven. And have our sins wiped away. It's not... Merely from reform, personal reform in our own lives, is it? It's it's because God looks to His Son and credits His saving work to our account. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How, how How can I repent? How can I turn from my sin? It's the same as asking, how can a dead man rise to life again? It's because Jesus does it by His mercy and His grace in me. We sang it this morning. Our God is the Lamb the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains. It's His blood that enables us to turn from our sin.